All right, let's dive into scripture. Take out your Bibles. We are in John chapter 2, verse 12. That was probably one of the most bizarre intros to church I've ever done, but whatever. Who cares? Moving on. All right, let me throw some ideas out to you. First one as we begin is this. At some point, we need to get beyond the incomprehensibility of God. Was that easy? All right, here's what I mean. There are a lot of us that overload and don't want to read the Bible because it's too hard to understand. There are a lot of us that don't want to try to bother learning about God because he's too big and we can't get our arms around him. There's a lot of us that shy away from following the Lord because we think it's complicated. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, if you have one of those, is this. What have you done with what you know? What have you done with what you know? Yes, God is incomprehensible. No, you're never going to get it. But that shouldn't stop you from doing what you do know. There, there are things in the Bible that are simple. You go, I don't want to read it. It's complicated. There's easy parts. Read the easy parts. All right? There's one in there that says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All right? It's, it's not that you can't understand that. It's that we're having a hard time doing that. And it says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you honestly can understand that and live on plumbing the depths of that, you actually have the whole thing. Okay, so it's, you can't use this excuse that I don't understand God. It's beyond me. It's bigger than me. No, it's not. There's so many things in here that you just read and your problem and my problem is not that we don't understand It's that we have a hard time submitting to it. We have a hard time accepting it. We have a hard time working with it You know what I mean? So we have to get beyond excuses and do what we do know And what you do know is that god loves you and that needs to make a difference You do know that jesus christ is the savior of the world You do know that God is calling you to repentance and saying, Lord, I'm sorry for who I've become and what I've done because I'm wicked inside. Lord, I confess that to you. Please cleanse me of my sin. We do know these things. We need to operate as if they're so. We need to stop with all of our excuses about not growing because it's over our head. It's not. God has talked baby talk to us. God has walked us piece by piece along the way. You're going to hear a message today that if you fall to pray to this whole idea of it's too complicated, then this message will be too complicated for you. If you listened and go, wait, I understood that, 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 and that, you're good. If you understood one thing from the word of God, that's more than enough we just now need to go live it. We now need to go experience it. We now need to go engage with it, not just get head knowledge. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So what we learned last week when we had Brian Kiley, a brilliant teacher, comes up here, talks about the crew getting assembled. I dropped a bomb on Brian Kiley. I gave him a ton of passages and a million complicated thoughts. He puts them all together and makes it look easy. That's why I hate him. But whatever, that's a personal thing. We've learned that Jesus has his crew together. We learned that he did his first sign miracle, not his first miracle. Jesus had been doing miracles around. They knew about it. The great catch was a miracle. There's a lot of different things that were miracles, but a sign means Jesus is now going public with a Messiah thing. 
We're about to read Jesus go public even more so today. He is going to grab people's attention. He's going to go head to head with the authorities. He's now going to put the temple on notice and the religious establishment that a Messiah has walked into town. That's where we pick it up in John chapter 2 verse 12. We will read about Jesus cleansing the temple. The only other thing you need to know before we begin is that we are not blending the gospels on this story, even though a cleansing of the temple is told in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all have the story of the cleansing of the temple. Why would I not combine it here? Because I believe, and scholars are separated on this. I believe there was two cleansings. I believe that Jesus cleansed out the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. A lot of people don't believe that. I believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the last one that happened on the last week of his life. And John is talking about the one that happened at the beginning of his ministry when it caught the leaders off guard. I believe that he did it at the beginning to put them on notice and they let that one pass because he was still a good guy. When he did it at the end, enough was enough, and they were going to kill that guy. So it ends up leading to the passion of the Christ. It ends up leading to the cross. So that's why we are not going to blend them today. We are only reading John's account. He's alone on this one. The only guy to talk about the first time. So let's pick it up right there. It says, after this, meaning after the water to wine incident in Cana of Galilee, Jesus went down in elevation to Capernaum, 16 miles away. He went with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. So we know that they're all in a herd still together. Later on, the brothers want nothing to do with him. Later on, Mary's confused, but right now everybody's still a team. And they stayed there for a few days. Capernaum becomes a new home base of Jesus, probably Peter's house. Remember, Jesus largely ended up being homeless and he lived with his buddies. All right, so Jesus slept on the couch. Jesus was hanging out at Peter's house, and that became the new home base. They were moving around a lot. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up in elevation to Jerusalem. Okay, Passover. You know this story? Uh, most of you do. There's a few that don't. Let me bring you into, uh, into our world. Passover is the pinnacle of celebrations and festivals to the Jewish people. It celebrates one of the most significant, crazy, amazing stories in the Old Testament. Israel was under slavery to the Egyptians for over 400 years. It was brutal. It was nasty. They cried out to God. God said, I will set you free. And then Moses went up to tell Pharaoh that, and Pharaoh thought that was a terrible idea, and he resisted. God then pounds Egypt until they give them up. Ten plagues fire down. Stuff that's crazy. Flies, gnats, boils, hail, darkness. I mean, just ripping this nation apart. Then he comes in with the atomic bomb. He said, my angel who will bring death will walk through your nation and I will slaughter the firstborn son of every home. Now that's going to get your attention, right? I mean, this is the big, no, you're going to let my people go. Trust me on this one. As the angel of death is preparing to come, the Israelites are going to go, wait, wait, hold up. (laughs) We're still here. What are we going to do? He said, well, I got a provision for you. Here's what I need you to do. 
I need you to get a lamb. I need you to sacrifice it, pour the blood into a bowl. I get it, totally gross. Put it into a bowl, and I want you to paint it on your door frame of your house, the wooden door frame of your house. Now, everyone's supposed to go, that's weird, because it's weird, right? Okay, let's not say it's not weird, it's weird. You paint blood, they're not used to just painting blood on stuff, all right? So they paint blood on the door frame of their house. When the angel of death is to come, he looks for that mark and then he passes over that house and goes to the next one. Get it? That's where the Passover thing comes from. Obviously, in your mind, if you know anything about Jesus Christ, you realize that we also have a wooden object that blood was painted on. That's the cross. The whole, it was all a foreshadowing of Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, shedding his blood so that when it is over the door frames of our heart, death has to pass over us and move on to the next person because we have eternal life. Are we all tracking on that? All right. So Passover, if I was going to milk that for a whole nother message, I could have done that. I could have done that. I didn't do that. I'm being nice to you. All right, here we go. So the whole idea is that Passover is a massive deal. They're celebrating the freedom out of Egypt. They're talking about how great God is. Everybody's flooding into Jerusalem. If you're going to celebrate that festival, at some point in your life, you want to celebrate it in Jerusalem. So we had pilgrims doing pilgrimages all over the place. The city is jam packed. And that's where this incident happens. Just got to set the tone. All right. It says, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Okay, here's the scene. The temple is designed like this in the inner core of the temple, which is beautiful, been worked on, renovated by King Herod the Great. For 46 years, they've been working to make it pristine. It has now been restored back to when Solomon built it back in the day. It's it's the largest thing in Jerusalem. So when you look at picture now and you see the dome on the rock, that's just the foundation of where the temple used to be. I mean, it's kind of a big deal, right? So even what you think of Jerusalem is going, oh, I know that building. That was just the foundations of this massive temple. It was beautiful. It was stunning. And so everyone would come just to marvel at the temple. The way that it was designed was that you had the inner place where God was to dwell, where only the high priest could enter in. Then you had what was called the court of the priests. The court of the priests was where priests could go to do their work. Outside of that was called the court of the Israelites. That's where male Jews could go to worship God. Outside of that, was where Jewish women could go. They had another court out there. They could not go any further than that. There was a blockade. Outside of that was everyone that was not Jewish. It was called the court of the Gentiles. So if you were non-Jewish, you could not go any further. You couldn't go where the Jewish women go. You couldn't go where the Jewish men go. You couldn't go where the priests go. You're way out here. But this was your special temple section For all of us that are not Jewish, that's as far as we could go. It was there in that part of the temple compound, Jesus walks in and everybody has set up shop. You have the people with the animals, you have the money changers. Now, what is this? It is a temple 7-Eleven. It is a temple convenience store. 
Okay, why? Well, it's very practical in nature. When you go on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you offer sacrifices. Sometimes it's an oxen. Sometimes it's a sheep. Sometimes it's a pigeon. So if you're going to travel like Jesus did from the north, you got a 70 mile, unless you go around Samaria, then it's 90 mile journey. Do you really want to lead cow 90 miles? Why not just buy him there? It's more convenient. When you get said cow down there of your own, you have to pay a fee for someone to examine it and make sure it's legit because you can't just offer any animal you want. It has to be perfect and unblemished. So you can either pay the tax there or you can buy one that's already legit. Got it? It's convenience. There's nothing wrong with the convenience of it. There's no problem with that. There's a problem with extortion. And they were doing that as well, right? Because once you start a business, there's always that longing to, we could, we could charge a little bit more. You know what I mean? There's always that temptation. But then you have money changers. Money changers were again, a convenience. You are not allowed to give money from where you come from to the temple. Only certain currency was acceptable to give. So you had to switch out your money for their money in order to give your tithes and offerings. Because it had to do with the quality of the silver. It had to do with it being unclean versus clean. Stuff like that. Of course, you paid a little fee in order to change out your money so you could give it to God. Are we all tracking on what's happening here? All right. I do not believe that there was anything wrong with the idea of helping people get their sacrifices in order in order to give to the Lord. So far, we haven't run into any problems. But Jesus gets super ticked off. Let's take a look at what happens. It says this, verse 15. And making a cord of uh, a whip of cords, that means grabbing stuff to lash people, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he threw over their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, which he's hoping everybody hears this, he's not just anti-pigeon people, right? You understand what I'm saying? And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right. I need you to picture the environment, cacophony, bedlam, chaos. Jesus, known in the area as miracle working guy, had done signs and wonders, had done miracles. They remember the John the Baptist connection. They know him in the South. He has a good reputation up to this point. People are wondering if he's the Messiah. Oh, look, nice Jesus teacher showed up. Oh, that's nice to have him at Passover this year. Oh, wait, what's he doing? Oh my gosh. He starts throwing stuff over, whipping, scaring everybody. He's chasing everything out. The animals are running crazy. The people are running. If you throw over a bunch of tables of money, you think that's not going to cause a problem? What everyone's going to be like, well, that coin was mine and this is yours, right? It's now everybody's diving for their money, trying to sort it out. And Jesus is casting everybody and he starts chasing them out of the court of the Gentiles. All right. Why in the world is Jesus so angry? I better suggest to you that at least two things cause this scenario. Number one, the hearts of the businessmen. Convenience shouldn't have been a problem. But they probably started honest and became corrupt. Let me tell you why. 
Can you imagine having a job where you get to be in the presence of God? You get to be around the temple all the time. You get a chance to talk about God, hear people worship. You're actually helping them worship. You're providing things for them so that they may worship. At the beginning, you're pumped to have a job like that. How awesome. I get to do work and I get to be around God all the time. It's a lot like wanting to work in a church. (laughs) Then you get in it and you go, wow, this is not what I expected. Wow, this is just a lot of work. No, we don't always just talk about God. Yes, all the God stuff is great, but I'm giving out and I'm working really, really hard. And now my head is no longer with God. My head is now, how do I get my job done? How do I get business done? And your mind begins to slide. And all of a sudden you find yourself not even thinking about God at all. You start thinking of it as a way to make your lifestyle happen. And you start having temptations of wanting to just do it for gain and gain and gain And it starts slipping all out of the place. And now all of a sudden, you're no longer worshipers. You're just businessmen. You go, man, that is... Well, those staff members of the church should be ashamed of themselves. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Are you impressed by walking into this place anymore? Because you're running into it too. You know you've fallen into this if you ever use phrases like, you know, I didn't get anything out of worship today. I'm sorry. Were we singing to you? I don't think so. I think you were here to sing for someone else. So I don't want to hear that. Yeah, we picked a style of music. Yeah, I get it's not your favorite. But it's not for you. I didn't get too much out of the message, you know, blah, I kind of was drifting and stuff like Was the word of God taught to you? You got more than enough. Chew on that. Understand that. Walk with that. Experience that. You're all right. When we start coming to church and the only reason we come here is because that's where our buddies are. That's where our friends are. That's where we make connections. That's where we feel better about ourselves. Do you understand how our heart has now slipped from an attitude of worship to an attitude of gain? It's happening to all of us. We have to watch and I would suggest to you that Jesus will overturn the tables in your heart. I think he will wreck your paradigm. He'll screw up church for you. He'll do something that dislodges you and he'll go, now are you going to show up? Oh, look, now you're not getting along with your buddies. Now are you still going to show up? Oh, look, now you kept going because you and your wife always went to church together and you went for her. Now you hate her guts. What are you going to do? You understand what I'm saying? Jesus will wreck you because he's purifying out the mixed motives on why you are here. So he's trying to get our heart and going, why are you with me? Do you want me for me? Have you come to worship me? Is this a house of prayer or a house of gain? Is this a house where you're going to worship me, where you're going to come before me, when you're going to submit to me, or is this a house where I'm supposed to download so you're more successful? What is happening here? Some of us don't even walk in and have any sense of awe and wonder that the presence of the Holy Spirit is here. We don't walk in here with any expectation. We don't walk in here with any idea that God is moving among us, that he could heal us at any moment, that he could hear our hearts, that he cares about our needs. We just walk in here and we worry whether or not there's coffee. You know what I'm saying? Here's his second. Amen. Right on. Right on. Here's the second reason why I think Jesus was so ticked off. Where was this happening? 
happening in the court of the Gentiles. Why? Because the Jews knew they didn't matter anyway. Can you imagine trying to worship in an atmosphere where there's cows running around, there's sheep, they're always making noise, there's money changers, people yelling about transaction fees, and you're supposed to focus on God? They wrecked the worship of the Gentiles because they didn't value them. That's called racism. They just said, sure, we'll set up shop here. Nobody's using this space anyway. Oh, people are using this space. The Gentiles, the people Jesus died for, are trying to use that space to get near God. And the Jews had crowded him out. And Jesus said, I'm not standing for that. And he went through and wrecked their whole place and said, set up shop somewhere else. Don't do it in my place. This is where I draw people near to me. It's not that business is bad. It's not that money is bad around the church. It's just, are the hearts right? And are we watching out for people? Are we still having an eye for evangelism? Are we still keeping an eye out to love on those who are less fortunate, that are hurting, that are having a difficult time? These are the things of Jesus's heart. And that's why we do that here. We're trying to do that. Well, sometimes we slip, but we're doing our best to try to say, God, I know what church is for. And I want it to be for that. We are never going to make it through this passage. <laughs> Ironically enough, the next phrase I want to point out is this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What's intriguing about that phrase is it means they're remembering back to a passage in Psalms where this was said. And they went, oh, that's like Jesus. He's fired up about God's house. But that's not what the passage says. The passage actually says, zeal for your house has consumed me. It's actually present and past. They used it in the future. Will consume me. What they were indicating, most scholars believe, is that the passion for the Father's will will ultimately kill Jesus on the cross. They're linking that whole thing through that the sheer passion for God will ultimately lead to the death of Jesus Christ. We pick it up in the next verse, verse 18. So the Jews initially disrupted people. They ran and grabbed the Pharisees, the people that are supposed to watch and make sure religious stuff is legit. And they came to Jesus and they said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, man, we hear you're a popular guy, but you just screwed up everything. What right? Who do you think you are to come in here and tell us how we're supposed to run the temple? We're in charge of the temple, not you. You do not get to just go in here and wreck everything and make a whole new way of doing things. What sign do you have from God that you have that authority? Let's pause right there. Have you ever asked Jesus a question and he never answers you directly? He starts going off on something else. That's kind of how Jesus always does it, right? Jesus, should I, should I take this job or not? He's like, there was once a man. And you're like, what? I don't, yeah, I get it. There once was a man, that's me. And I'm trying to ask you a question. You're not listening to me, right? Jesus always does. Sure enough, he does it with them. They said, what sign are you going to show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. What you're going to raise it up in three days. All right. Jesus doesn't answer them. That's weird. But now John comments, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When he was therefore raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here's what's so cool about that is he said, you're telling, whenever I mention temple, you guys immediately think of the place where God dwells in this building. Let me explain something to you. I am the visible form of the invisible God. In me dwells all 
of the Godhead bodily dwells. The whole essence of God is in me. I am God. I'm the temple. Don't you understand? You're missing it. You're running to this building over here and I'm right here. So if we're going to talk about temple, let's talk about the legit temple. Let's talk about the fact that the son of God is in your midst and you're missing it. You know what? Go ahead and destroy the real temple. And I have the power to lay down my life and take it up again. I can raise it right back up. I only need what? Three days. And I only did that because of the sign of Jonah. I die on a Friday. I raise on a Sunday. I lay my life down. I pick it back up. That's my sign to you. You want to know if I'm the Messiah? Watch this. I will resurrect from the dead. Now you'll know. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, on the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So they started to trust him because they saw the signs. It wasn't just the chasing people out. It was the signs and wonders. It was the radical stuff, the weird stuff, the stuff outside their paradigm. It was the healing and the crazy prophetic. It was the casting of demons. It was that kind of stuff. He was doing that. When they saw the signs, they began to trust in his name. But Jesus, on his part, did not trust himself to them. That's called a word play in Greek. Both words are trust. They trusted in him. He could not trust in them. It says, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now that sounds like a Yoda phrase. What? It's super simple. It only means this. Jesus knows that men are flaky. Jesus knows that we're in one day and we're out the next, and sometimes we're hardcore and then we fall apart, right? So he doesn't need anyone to validate the fact that he's the Messiah. He knows who he is. He doesn't need someone to make him king. He's already king. He doesn't need someone to promote him. He's just doing the father's will. So even though they began to trust in him, there's no way he could trust in them. They were there for mixed motives. Now, they believed in him. Why? Because of the signs and wonders. Signs and wonders point to God and having God's presence and his kingdom pressing into this world. So let me just suggest something to you. There's a lot of debate these days about signs and wonders. Do they still exist? The Bible says... That when the perfect comes, these things will pass away. The perfect coming is Jesus' second return. I'm going to suggest to you that we still need signs and wonders, the same reason they did back then. They were stupid, we're stupid. We need help. So God will continue to do signs and wonders to show that he is still among us and to show that he still cares about us. And scene. Okay, move on. We're going next one. Chapter 3, verse 1. I was just trying to irritate people. Here we go. Chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The Pharisees were the guys in charge of making sure God's word was handled correctly. All right. So they are the ones that have all the head knowledge. They're the ones that are brilliant in the law. They're the ones that are all about theology and they spend their entire world discussing and discerning that every little thing is nailed down that God ever said. They added to it. They were trying to go, if God said this, we need to back way up over here. And they spent their whole entire lives being super religious. Now, one of those guys, a guy named Nicodemus, a very wealthy, influential man, part of the ruling Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus A ruler of Jesus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night. Why did he come by night? Well, you could easily say, well, it's because he was worried about other people going, dude, you didn't go see the crazy guy, did you? Now, why would you hang out with that guy? That guy's weird. You saw what he did in the temple. So maybe he went to hide. 
you go, well, maybe he just went to hang out with Jesus when he could get him alone. That's acceptable too. In the book of John, night always has the connotation of negative. It's always about darkness. So here's what I would suggest to you. John just said, and Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews, came clueless. And he needed to know from Jesus what was right. And he said to him, Rabbi, what? You're part of the Sanhedrin, a council of 70 Jews that runs all the Jews. You are trained in the best universities. You're the smartest guy on the planet. And you come up to a homeless carpenter and you call him rabbi, teacher. What? Where did he get this kind of respect from? Well, look what he said. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. That's basically going, I don't know what to do with this. This whole thing is so weird to me. Man, I've been walking in my experience with God. And Jesus is going, what experience? Oh, you've been walking in your knowledge of God. Oh, I get that. Anyway, I don't know how to wrap my mind around what you're doing. I don't understand how you fit into my paradigm. And Jesus is like, that's funny because I don't fit into your paradigm. That's kind of the problem. And they began a dialogue together. Check this out. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, sounds old school and archaic, so we're going to change that. Everybody remember the word behold? Y'all know that, right? Seriously, check this out, right? That's what behold means. I got a new one for you today, all right? We got to memorize these, okay? Truly, truly, I say to you is this phrase. Listen up, this is deep, okay? So whenever you hear that phrase, you actually just say to your mind, listen up, this is deep, okay? So we're going to do this together. And Jesus answered him, Listen up, this is deep. Unless one is born again, and every other time that's used in the Bible, it means born from above. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't be even a part of what God is doing in this world unless you're born again. Nicodemus said to him, man, that's weird. How can a man be born when he's old? What is he going to enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's not only gross, it's highly improbable. And Jesus answered, listen up, this is deep. You guys tracking with me? Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. So unless you're born again, you got no part in the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of water and the spirit. What does that mean? Everybody's like, that means water baptism, blah, blah, blah. It's Ezekiel. Ezekiel said, from God, I will sprinkle you and cleanse your heart with water and I will make you new. And I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, and I will be your God and you will be my people and I will put my spirit in you and you will live. This is Ezekiel. So let's not get too deep and start trying to argue stuff. It means God needs to clean you up, which we do through repentance, and God needs to empower you to live right. You can't just get emptied. You also got to get filled. When we get saved, the Holy Spirit not only kicks out the garbage, but he takes up residence. You understand what I mean? All right. It says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God because that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. People only get what people make. Supernatural gets what supernatural makes. Listen, you need to be born again. The same reason you were born the first time. Why were you born with legs? Because in this world we walk. Why were you born with arms? Because in this world we grab. Why were you born with eyes? Because in this world we need to see to track on things. Why were you born with ears? Because in this world we need to hear. 
in the new place, in the place of God, in the kingdom of God, you need to be redesigned. You need to be reborn in order to have the faculties to interact with that world. You understand what I'm saying? This body, this born is not enough. You got to be reborn to be able to be redesigned to be able to live in a whole new way. Now, all of a sudden, when you're born again by the Holy Spirit, you start tracking on the things of God. The Bible starts jumping off the page to you. You start having power to say no to sin. You get your mind renewed. All of a sudden, you start spinning in a whole new dimension. You know what I mean? No, you don't. Okay, praise God. Number seven, number verse seven. Whoa. Hello. Verse seven. Jesus said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't get hung up on the fact that I don't know, man, that's too deep for me. Listen, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. That's called a word play. Again, the word for wind in Greek is pneuma. The word for spirit is pneuma. So Jesus said, Hey, you don't even understand the wind, right? I mean, it come, you see its effect, but you don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. Well, in the same way, the way that God saves you, the way the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you're not going to fully understand. I just need you to trust me. God's going to do what God needs to do to get you home and to get you thriving in this place. Just trust. You don't have to know all the answers. Nicodemus said to him, how in the world is any of this going to happen? He's kind of frustrated, right? Because he's going, you keep talking about stuff that's so weird. And Jesus said, are you the key teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. Man, no wonder we're in so much trouble. You're the leader of Israel and you don't get it. Dude, do you not know the Old Testament? I'm talking about Ezekiel. I'm talking about all the stuff you have memorized. Why do you know so much in your head and you don't live any of it? How come you're so brilliant in Bible trivia and yet I can't see the evidence of me in your life? What is the disconnect here? Why are we so brilliant and so dead? Uh Uh-oh. Look at verse 11. And Jesus said, listen up, this is deep. We speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't even believe us. You know what that means? Jesus is talking about we, the Godhead, and all those that are in the kingdom. We're talking about what we're living. You're only talking about what you know out of books. You don't have a clue what we're talking about. You don't believe us when we walk in it. You don't believe in us when we talk about it. You think that we're all a bunch of crazy wackos. You think that this doesn't fit your paradigm, and so you're going di- to completely discard it. You know what? No. Look at the next phrase. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe when I get to heavenly things? If you won't even believe the whole, well, it's kind of like this on earth. If you can't understand that, what if we get to a place where we're talking about heavenly stuff that has no relation to earth? If I can say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, it starts small and it grows big. If you can't understand that, how are you going to understand the Trinity? There actually is no relation of the nature of God here on earth. There, there is no relatability there. How are you ever, if you don't understand the basic stuff, if you don't receive it and interact with it and walk with it, how are you ever going to track with me when I start going hardcore deep about the things of God? You'll just, you'll just discard it right away. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. 
Listen, nobody's been up there and seen it except me because I just came from there. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. Wait, what? The, Moses lifted up the what? You know this story? It's only six verses long. Totally bizarre. You ready? I love stories. This is what happens, right? It, it, that was bugging me. <laughs> So sure enough, the Israelites complain against God again, right? I mean, they're always complaining. Man, I wish I was back in Egypt. I hate the desert. I hate, I never have enough water. I never have enough food. I never have enough this, never have enough that. This manna stuff is gross, blah, 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 blah. And so they're constantly complaining against God. They lose patience and they start grumbling against God and Moses. And it says, God got so ticked off. He sends fiery serpents to bite the people and kill them. Whoa, what? First of all, what's a fiery serpent? It's like a snake on fire. He's like, ah, right? He's screaming. He doesn't have any arms, but anyway. So he's biting everybody. They're all biting and people are dying. And so they're like, oh, we screwed up. We're so sorry. We don't like snakes biting us and dying. Moses, you got to do something. So he goes to God and he's like, God, man, this is craziness. What are we going to do? And he's like, all right, I have a plan. He said, all right, what is it? I want you to make a bronze, one of those little fiery guys, stick him on a pole and then hold him up. And anyone that gets bit, they can look at the pole and be healed. What? What kind of plan is that? That's weird. Right? And so, sure enough, the people, oh, oh, I've been bit by a snake. And they look up and it's healed. Now, what is that all about? So, I'm, I'm going to drop a couple bombs on you. Here's the first one it's salvation. What do you mean it's salvation? Check this out. Let me, let me ask you a question to begin with. Did the brass snake heal anybody? Okay, we're all clear on that, right? All right, so what actually healed people? God. So what was the whole brass snake about? Well, think about it this way. God designed it. And when you get bit, you got a couple choices. Are you going to believe that what God says is true? Where are you going to look? Well, you look up to the pole. Why? Because God said it was legit. You trusted in God. You had faith in God that if you looked up, he would heal you. And it was symbolic by what you were looking at. Your act of faith looking up and believing and trusting in what God has done, then ignites the faith so that your healing can be released. That's salvation. Why? Because everyone here in the world has been bit by a snake. It's called sin. And it is insidiously destroying us and it will ruin us. And Jesus said, I will be lifted up just like that. I want you to look up at me. I want you to believe me that I will heal you. Well, that's kind of a dumb plan of salvation. Look at me, look up at me as I'm lifted up on the cross, as I'm lifted up in the ascension, as I rise to the right hand of the father, I want you to believe that what I say is true, that I can save you, that I can reconcile you, that I can forgive you, that I can bring you grace. I want you to look at me and you will be healed. Do you understand how faith works in the same way of the healing of God coming down? That's craziness. That's awesome. Here's another bomb I'll drop on you. Why a snake? He could have put anything on the pole, right? I mean, he could, he could have grabbed and said, and put a dove on a pole, and when they look at the dove pole, they're healed. It didn't matter what was on the pole. So why a snake? Are snakes normally good in the Bible? No. no. As a matter of fact, I refer to it as snakeism. That's racism, but with snakes. Okay, snakes always get a bad reputation, and I don't understand why. And all the snakes that are saved and love the Lord are totally irritated. But anyway, that's not important. Why a snake? Because it's the very thing that caused their pain. Check this out. 
the cross, Satan's greatest victory tool was used for the redemption of mankind. Why did Jesus touch the leper? Because the one thing that was killing him in his life is no one would ever touch him. And Jesus took the one thing that caused his pain and brought it to be his redemption and healed him through the touch. Do you understand that God will take your pain, your past, your bad stuff, your garbage, your woundedness, your abuse, your addiction, and he will turn it and redeem it and use it to set you free. How awesome is that? Praise God. It says this, because God loved the world so much. You seen this? Don't go. It's at the game. I get it. John three sixteen. Okay. Let's pull it back out of that. Check it. This is, this is huge because God loved the world so much. Pause. You just blew every Jew's mind. Why? Because in the old Testament, it was always in God loves the Jews. John just shattered everything and he used love and the world in the same sentence because God loves the world. What kind of world? A broken, messed up, nasty, rebellious, horrific, sin-filled world. God initiated. They all hate his guts and God initiated. And you know why that's important? Because you at your most wicked, God wants to redeem and save. Because God loved the world so much that he gave the only son of that type, his precious only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever... There's no limitations on who that is, that whoever believes in him, receives the info, believes the facts and lives as if it's fact. Look up, trust, be healed. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not die, never truly die, but have a new quality of life, a God type life forever understand that everyone lives forever the torment of hell is forever the torment of the lake of fire is forever everyone lives forever the difference of eternal life is that the quality of life is different you get god type life and that begins now for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world jesus came the first time to save but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned why because you are forgiven atonement is made for your sin your life is traded for jesus and you have grace lavished all over you but whoever does not believe whoever does not look at the pole is still sick Whoever does not look at the cross raised up, whoever does not look to Jesus, whoever does not look at the only way to salvation, whoever does not look at the son of God and say, save me is condemned already because your guilt remains because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is what has become clear. This is the judgment of all that the light came into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does God's will, whatever is true comes into the light, open handed for examination so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's the point. God's talking to you. What are you going to do with what you heard? I know you didn't understand it all. You heard something and you heard something that keyed into your life right now. Maybe you just heard God say you're sick. You're condemned and I'm not okay with that. I love you too much to leave you like that. I have been lifted up, despised, humiliated, beaten, killed, crucified, 
for you. Maybe you heard that. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to look up at the cross? Or are you going to keep looking down at yourself? What are you going to do? There's some of us in here that have heard other things. God was tapping you on your heart. I said something and you can't get it out of your head. Why? Because God just keeps bringing up going, that's you, that's you, that's you, that's you, that's you. What are you going to do about that? You're going to change? You're going to submit? You're going to fall before the Father? What are you going to do? I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm going to pray about those things. And then we have a a short closing challenge by Pastor Jason on the screen. Then you're going to be dismissed. But here's what I'm going to pray for. I'm going to pray that whatever that was that God just revealed in your heart comes true right here, right now. So when we pray, I want you to give an indicator to God that you heard him. I don't care what it is. It's personal to you. I don't care whether or not you signal like this, God, I heard you. I don't care whether or not you feel like God said, I want you to stand up right now. Tell me you, that you heard me. I don't care what it is. Do something, some type of activity to say, God, I heard you. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for those that need Jesus Christ for the first time. I'm going to pray for those that need Jesus Christ all afresh today. It doesn't matter. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, you have said to us, Lord, that we need you. We heard you. We, we knew that before we walked in here. It just got thicker. It just got heavier. It felt like a blanket all over us. Even now we're beginning to respond to you in our hearts. Even now we're beginning to get nervous and tense. We just indicate to you right now, Lord, we hear you. We hear you. We hear you. We want to be free. Jesus, for those that are just coming in to understand you right now, I ask that you would rescue them. Lord, as they began to see the scroll of the list of wrongs and evil and wickedness and mistakes and problems scroll through their life, God, I ask that you would reach in, cancel that out, trade your beautiful, perfect life, Jesus, for theirs, and that you would set them free, that you would download love and forgiveness and grace, that even as they own it, as they admit it as they confess it as they repent from it and turn from that and they look to the cross as they look up to be healed lord jesus heal them save them rescue them deliver them god there are others of us that we need a fresh touch from you right here right now we give you an indicator we hear you we need to change our lives we need to fix things we need to be renewed we need to be refreshed we need some freedom we need some healing we need some change whatever it is god we hear you and if you're saying that you are moving on us and that you will rescue us and you will change us we believe you at your word and we receive it right now oh god Send your Holy Spirit upon us that we might be different. That the way we are right now is not sufficient. We will not stop until we look just like you, Jesus. And so we submit to you afresh. In your precious name we pray. Amen.